welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using genetic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I'm in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GenMatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Dope Project. In this episode, we're going to cover the brutal killing of Scott Martinez, a single father in La Mesa, California, in the summer of 2006. And later, I'm going to tell you about a John Doe, who the DNA Doe Project is currently trying to identify. Scott Martinez's murder is especially horrendous, so let's settle in and begin. Now, I have tried many different ways to find out some information about our victim's early life or even current life when he died, but I wasn't able to find much. I couldn't even find out what his occupation was when he died. But we do know that he had two daughters, Angelina, 25, and another daughter that was just a toddler when he was killed, and they both loved him very much. Scott Martinez was born in 1959 or 1960, and he was 47 years old when he was killed. In the summer of 2006, Scott is a single father and living in his own apartment in La Mesa, California. This is about nine or 10 miles outside of downtown San Diego, but it's a pretty big city on its own, and it has a population of about 55,000 people at the time. It's the early morning of June 17th, 2006, when Scott comes home to his apartment and is immediately attacked by someone. Some man is stabbing him and slashing at him over and over, repeatedly and plunging the weapon that he's using into Scott at least three times so deep that the blade comes out the other side of his body. Once the attack is over and Scott is dead, the killer decides that he needs to clean up before he leaves the apartment. So he goes to the bathroom and wipes himself off with toilet paper. While he's doing this, though, he hears the front door open. Someone is coming in. The killer is able to make it to Scott's bedroom, rip open the screen in the window and jump out and run away, but he does leave his blood smeared on the window ledge as well as the toilet paper behind that he was using to clean himself. So it was actually two people that came into the apartment. Now, I can't find their names, but one news article says that it was a male and a female, and the female had a key to Scott's apartment and the other was a male friend of hers. And they find Scott and they take in this horrendous murder scene. Could you imagine walking into a friend's apartment and you see him laying there on the floor blood everywhere. Who knows what else you're looking at? And according to the article where I I see these two people mentioned, the male friend didn't like police and he didn't want anything to do with being questioned about this. So they discuss it and they decide they're going to leave the apartment and not say anything. And they don't call the police. And this man that came with Scott's friend to the apartment, he actually was able to stay away from the whole thing and wasn't even interviewed until years after the murder. Well, it wasn't until the next day on June 18th that the female friend decided that she was going to call the police about it, and it was only then that Scott's killing was made known to the public. When they processed the scene, the police found the murder weapon right away. It was laying right there on the floor next to Scott, and it was a three-foot decorative sword. Oh, can you imagine? And it would later be determined that the sword belonged to Scott himself, and it was, quote, heavily bent in the middle during the attack. Ugh, what a brutal, brutal way to go. Now, the coroner's report will conclude that Scott had been slashed and stabbed more than 30 times by his attacker. 
But what about the other blood or other DNA evidence that they could do something with? Well, police did find the toilet paper and the blood smears on the window. So they took all the samples of all the blood and all the other evidence that they could find, and they tested it for the DNA. And the lab was able to isolate two unknown males that had bled in the home at some point in time that were not Scott's blood. And within a month, San Diego County police criminalist Connie Milton was able to submit the DNA profiles to CODIS and other databases to see if they could match anyone in those systems. But unfortunately, there were no hits. Of course, friends and family members were interviewed about who could have done this or why, but there are no leads that came out of any of the questioning. Now, over the years, many suspects were identified and tested against the DNA that was found at the Martinez murder scene, but no matches were ever found. And so the case went cold, but Scott's family and the police are never giving up. And the DNA found at the crime scene, those profiles are being run through CODIS constantly, but no hints ever come back. In 2016, a new detective comes on the case, and his name is Detective Ryan Gramillion. At the same time, they're trying to run new DNA tests on the evidence that was found at the scene. Because of more recent advances in DNA technology, they're hoping to have more hits because they're having a more more thorough results come back. Unfortunately, there still aren't any hits that come back. So it was in early 2018 that the Golden State Killer's identity was discovered, right? When Detective Gramillion hears of this, he decides to ask his department if they can call on Parabon Nanolabs to help narrow down the suspects in the search for the for the murderer of Scott Martinez. And now keep in mind, while these genealogy investigations done by Parabon are insightful and needed, they are not cheap. Many times they need a fresh sample from the evidence of the crime to be able to create a new profile. This kind of DNA testing is much more thorough than other types of DNA testing that was done in the past because the lab needs to be able to isolate so many more different parts of this DNA than had been done before. And this can cost thousands of dollars and that's before they even get the results back. After they get the results back, they're hoping that they're gonna be able to actually use those results, that they're gonna be thorough enough. Once they get the report into a site like GEDmatch or another database that's public, this is the part of the investigation that actually does take a lot of time and money as well. Because remember, not all genealogists work for free. In this case, the profile was extracted and it was able to be uploaded into GEDmatch in September of 2018. And the genetic researchers were able to discover a hit. The suspect was likely a second or third cousin to the female user of the GEDmatch database. The researcher working the profile contacted this matching relative of the suspect, and then the next chapter of the work began. They had to figure out how the now-known relative was linked to the suspect. Did they share the same great-grandfather or great-grandmother? Was it on the relative's mom's side or the dad's side? Was the suspect related to this person on his mom's side or his dad's side? Who knows? There's so many questions. And how many branches or twigs even of the family tree do we have to go down before we can find out? Well, I wasn't able to find the genealogist's report on this case, and I'm not sure if it was only Cece Moore herself or a whole team, probably a whole team of hers that actually did different parts of the footwork, but eventually they were able to come up with the name of the suspect to give police. And in 2018, in October, Parabon gives police the name of their most likely hit on the DNA profile that they had given them, and the police department was shocked. This name had actually never been on the list of their possible suspects. But Detective Grimelian immediately started digging to see if this man was in the area at the time and if the details of his life made him a possible or plausible suspect in Scott's killing. This suspect was 26 years old at the time, 
and he was actually living in La Mesa. Over the course of time, though, this suspect had actually moved to a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Detective Cremillion was able to get a search warrant for the DNA sample from this suspect, and he and his team traveled up to Oregon to find him. On January 9th, the owner of the DNA left behind at Scott's murder scene was picked up and brought to the police department. They told him that they wanted a sample of his saliva, and he didn't want to give it up. But then as soon as they showed him the the search warrant, he had to. And so they got the sample, and then they sent it directly overnight to the crime lab in California. And the next morning, as soon as the San Diego Police Department got the sample, it was immediately tested and against the profile that they had stored all these years, and it was a match. And on January 10th, 2019, police announced the arrest of Zachary Bunny in Portland, Oregon, for the 2006 murder of Scott Martinez. Now, Bunny spent a few weeks in jail in Oregon before he was extradited back to California, but eventually he was back in California before the end of the month. You can imagine how Angelina felt when she got the news that they had found her father's killer. And this is what she says at the at the announcement of the arrest. Quote, without all of their hard work, we would not be receiving the gift that we have gotten, which is peace of mind and final closure. Words cannot express what this news has done for all of us who knew and loved my father. It's a day that we thought we would never see, unquote. Now, initially, Bunny had pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. So in June of 2019, everybody had to go to court for a preliminary hearing for the trial. And at that hearing, the prosecutor said that they believed that he had thought Scott was sleeping with his his girlfriend. Now, there was a witness who testified at this hearing that told the court that he had dated Zachary Bunny's girlfriend before, before Bunny did and that he and the girlfriend were still in touch. The girlfriend told this ex-boyfriend that she was having an affair with Scott, who was the father of the girl that she babysat. And then the ex-boyfriend decided he would tell Bunny what she said. Now, Bunny was so mad, apparently, that his girlfriend was cheating on him that he must have just decided that Scott needed to die. So he followed the girlfriend to Scott's house once while she went to go babysit and find, just to find out where Scott lived. That girlfriend actually also testified at the preliminary hearing, and she had a little something different to say. She did acknowledge that she was Scott's babysitter for his youngest daughter, the little girl, but she never had a relationship with Scott. She said that she sometimes would get paid by Scott with drugs instead of money, though. And she also told the court that she had no idea that Bunny, her boyfriend at the time, was jealous of Scott because she didn't even know that Scott, that he even knew Scott existed. That ex-boyfriend, though, he also told the court that when he met Bunny once, Bunny actually talked about being okay with drug dealers being robbed. Now, for his part, Bunny said that after he and the girlfriend had broken up, he had filed a restraining order against her. So I don't know what kind of relationship these people are in, but it's a wild ride. Now, at one point, Bunny's defensive attorney actually makes sure that we all understand where his client's coming from. He says, just because my client's blood was found on toilet tissue and smeared on a window whose screen is ripped out, that doesn't mean he's a murderer. Come on, guys. We don't even know when those blood smears were left behind, right? Um, okay. So Scott is just really bad at cleaning up random strangers' blood and fixing slashed windows in his bedroom? That's what we're supposed to believe? All right, dude. But by November of 2019, Zachary Bunny and his attorney were able to come to an agreement on a guilty plea deal with the prosecutor. Everyone agreed that he would plead guilty to manslaughter 
and only be sentenced to 12 years. And then the prosecutor would just drop all the murder, drop the murder charge and everyone would be able to forego the trial. Now I couldn't find Bunny's own comments about the details of the murder or the motive, but we're going to go with what we were, what was testified at the, at the hearing in, in June. On December 18th, 2019, Zachary Bunny is sentenced to 12 years in prison for the murder or manslaughter charge of Scott Martinez in 2006. At the sentencing, Angelina says about the plea deal, quote, the amount of years that he was on the run, and this is the amount of years he's going to be given as a sentence, it was a sign, and I had to take it. I'm just grateful that this day has come. I couldn't ask for a better Christmas gift, unquote. Now, I want to finish this episode with a story about a body that was found in the Atlantic Ocean in 2000. This case has been funded and is currently being researched by the volunteer genealogists at the DNA Doe Project. The DNA Doe Project is a volunteer-run organization that does the same kind of research that goes into solving these cold cases, the murders or the rapes. But here, they're finding out who a person actually is. And there are three steps to these investigations. The first thing is to be able to raise enough money to fund the DNA testing. Then they need to get the DNA testing done and upload it into GEDmatch. And then finally, once it's in GEDmatch or some other public database, they have to create a family tree with any hits that they come across. And that can take a lot of time because remember, it's not just calling the person that's a match that's a distant relative. It's also going through local newspapers and obituaries and notices and Facebook profiles and getting in touch with people and having those people cooperate. Now, this profile of this John Doe is on the active page, which means that his case has been fully funded and they've been able to create a profile for him and he's been uploaded into GEDmatch. Right now, it's just going through the research stage. So hopefully the more people that have their profiles opted in, the quicker he'll be able to get discovered and identified. And his name is the Jonesport John Doe. Jonesport is a coastal town in Maine, pretty far north of the state. It's about an hour's drive from the Canadian border. At the end of July in the year 2000, about 30 miles off the coast of Jonesport, the remains of an elderly man were found floating in the water. And he was almost unrecognizable from decomposition and animal and insect activity, but his body was still intact. John was wearing a white undershirt, a blue long sleeve knit shirt, and a pullover, but there aren't any mention of the kind of pants he was wearing, so I'm not positive he had pants on, but he did still wear two socks on each foot. He also had a Casio watch on his left wrist. The autopsy revealed that John had died about two months prior to being found and had a number of heart problems, and they also believed that John was a pipe smoker. As far as his physical attributes, they believe he was about 60 to 65 years old, Caucasian, about 200 pounds, and 5 foot 11 inches. He had brownish hair and hazel or green eyes. So who was John, right? What happened to him? Was this an accident? Was it foul play? Was it a suicide? Did he take himself out there or was he with someone else? Now, I looked up 30 miles from shore. And I found that if you're fishing, once you're out farther than nine miles from shore, you're considered to be in quote, deep waters. And you need a really hefty, hefty boat to handle those waves. So 
How far from the shore did John go into the water? And did he float that far out? Now, they do think that he's been dead for the, for two months. So maybe he's been floating and he wasn't that far out when he went in the water. But with the tides, did he have to be past a certain point, like maybe past the nine mile distance in order to not be pushed back to shore right away? Now, I'm sorry, I'm not a boater. I don't know about any of this stuff. And we might not know those answers, but hopefully we'll soon be able to find out who John really is. And the other question, did he come from Canada? Did he come from Maine? Um, as far as, you know, his body being out, you know, floating on the water, did did he maybe float north from the south, like New Hampshire, Massachusetts? Well, he must have a family out there or friends or coworkers that are missing him. And John's case has been being researched since 2019, and they still haven't been able to figure out who he is. So hopefully he does get his name back soon. It may just be that a close enough relative to him does not have their DNA profile uploaded and and opted into GEDmatch. So that's probably what the roadblock is. For more information about the Jonesport John Doe and other active and pending DNA Doe Project cases, visit their website at dnadoeproject.org. Thank you for being here today and listening to this case of Scott Martinez and the Jonesport John Doe. These are just two more reasons to consider opting in at GEDmatch. You can find me at Instagram and Facebook at The Ties That Find, and you can find sources on my website at thetiesthatfind.com. Music.